0: The games with the Raiders were not games. <laughs> no, games are fun, you
1: know, these were wars. This gentleman has been working for seven years over in Candlestick Park, and that's only seven miles of water away from that uh, house of horrors, the Oakland Coliseum. We had guys that hated them. We'd openly say, I hate the Raiders.
0: And then if you talk to the Raiders football team, we hate the Kansas City Chiefs.
1: You know, it's only a game, right? Not this one. This is not only a game. This is Raider Week. Rivalries, no matter what sport, are built on big games. If you don't play big games that matter to each team, it's not gonna be a rivalry. Chicago and Green Bay, that's geography. That's why they can't stand each other. The Chiefs and Raiders didn't have geography, but they had those games in the 60s that created this this feeling. The great storied rivalries in the NFL are rivalries as much for fans as, as they are for the players. With this, there is genuine animosity, there's genuine ill will, and that's one of the things that makes football great, is in the
0: face of all that, your team prevails.
1: Kansas City and Oakland, it seemed like it was always a big game. It was always the NBC game late on Sunday afternoons. Sure, and this is the NFL game of the week. That all of America was saying, we gotta watch this, because it's really fun they played competitive important games that meant something
0: even before the chiefs were the chiefs the rivalry began when they were the dallas texans so the rivalry goes way back
1: welcome to good seats still available a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports here's your host tim hanlon Well, you bet that, Rival, we started way back when. How you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, and yes, you have stumbled into the wild and wacky world of good seats still available. What is it? Well, it's our journey each and every week uh, into what used to be in professional sports. I uh, thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart and the heart of my bottom or whatever that is uh, for finding us this week. Uh, We know you've got a gazillion choices out there in podcast land, and uh we're just honored that you would give us a little bit of your time and download or stream or wherever you're getting it into your uh, into your earbuds and uh, giving us a listen. We appreciate it. We uh, have a pretty interesting little topic for you this week, and uh, we can't wait to get into it. Uh, our guest this week is a guy named Matt Ehrlich. Uh, he's a professor emeritus of journalism at the University of Illinois, and he has a new book out uh, that uh, is a really, I think, a fun and interesting little twist on a little bit of what you just heard in that clip just a few moments ago. The book is called Kansas City versus Oakland the bitter sports rivalry that defined an era. And as we get into this sort of conversation of uh, a tale of two cities, shall we say, perhaps not uh, the most obvious uh, cities you would choose on the American map uh, to be sort of denoted as rivals uh, in any way, shape or form, certainly not geographically. Uh, this is Kansas city, obviously in the heart of the Midwest and Oakland, a uh, a scrappy and, and working class city uh, sort of in the, uh, the, The shadows of its uh, sort of richer, or at least historically so, city across the bay in San Francisco. What do these two cities either have in common or what do they have against each other? Well, certainly sports is at the root of a lot of it. And certainly one of the bitterest rivalries in pro sports emanated from the old AFL of the 1960s between the Kansas City Chiefs, yes, previously domiciled as the Dallas Texans in the earliest days, which we talked about, by the way, with one of those voices that you just heard Michael McCambridge in our episode number three. You might want to uh, dial that one up and uh, listen to that if you've not enjoyed that one already, Uh, because there's a fascinating story about how the Texans even got to Kansas City. Uh, And uh, thank God they changed their name because they were, if Lamar Hunt had his his, uh, way, they would have actually been called the Kansas City Texans. But I digress. But uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, of course, and the Oakland Raiders, uh, soon to uh, be the uh, Las Vegas Raiders uh, relatively soon, uh, they were uh, the fiercest rivals in the American Football League, and, and that rivalry certainly carried over into the NFL. And it really kind of helped sort of shape a very interesting narrative about how these two cities, uh, through the eyes and the ears and the uh, play, I guess, of their sports teams, these two football franchises that, uh, for whatever reason, didn't like each other and and pretty early on. They were obviously very good. They were probably the two, if not the two, consistently best teams in the AFL. Uh, certainly that spilled over in those transitory years between, uh, you know, those early Super Bowls when the AFL and the NFL theoretically coexisted. And uh, obviously, you know, the, the the rivalry has kind of waned and, and waxed over the years. But as you heard of that clip and Len Dawson, uh, one of the voices there, he he encapsulated it. He, they call it Raider Week, right? It's it's not just a game. It's an entire week of preparation and uh, a, a reminder of all the kinds of uh, Ill will and, and and bad blood and frankly, just just am, uh, amazing competitive uh, games that have happened over the years. And if you really want to treat, go back into YouTube and, and some of these old NFL films things and check out some of these uh, amazing games, especially AFL championship games and things are really on the line. Uh, these uh, two teams not only did not like each other, but they played the hell out of each other uh, year in and year out. Obviously, we mentioned Lamar Hunt. He's a voice in that clip that you just heard. A guy named Bob Gretz, who's the uh, author of Hail to the Chiefs, he kind of sets the tone a little bit. And of course, you heard Michael McCambridge. And of course, uh, Peter King uh, of Sports Illustrated, a longtime pro football writer. Uh, All of those gentlemen uh, in that clip kind of sort of underline that sort of rivalry, uh, that very bitter rivalry that the Chiefs and the Raiders uh, sort of brought to bear. And it becomes kind of a backdrop on this sort of broader theme about these two cities and how uh, this, that sports rivalry, and frankly, uh, another one, a little bit more, a little less obvious, but there's also a baseball component to this. And we're going to get into that, too, uh, with Matt Ehrlich in a few moments. And it's, it's it's not necessarily a directly competitive one, although the Royals and the, uh, the A's uh, over the years, the Oakland A's, of course, and the uh, Kansas City Royals, of course, uh, have had their moments. There's no doubt. But uh, for those of you who are of a certain age, you may actually not remember The fact that the A's were in Kansas City for a bunch of years before they moved to Oakland. They were the Kansas City A's. They moved from Philadelphia in the 19, oh, geez, I think it was late 1950s, early 1960s. I'm sorry the date escapes you at the moment. But uh, a guy by the name of Charles Finley, if you remember that name, I'm sure most people do. Baseball authoritarians will remember the uh, purchaser of said franchise and uh, then bolted from Kansas City to Oakland. And uh, that is an amazing story in and of itself. But the 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 interesting uh, intrigue between uh, the Kansas City A's uh, bolting for Oakland, uh, the replacement very uh, shortly thereafter of a brand new franchise in the American League called the Royals, uh, a new stadium, uh, which is obviously still today uh, known as Kauffman Stadium. All of that is also very much part of this not only rivalry, but sort of friction between these two cities that, again, if you if you, you open up the map, you would not have guessed in a million years that Kansas City, Missouri and Oakland, California would be such interesting, at least on the sporting uh, landscape, rivals. And we get into that very interesting uh, topic, uh, again, with our guest Matt Ehrlich coming up in just a few moments. This is a really intriguing discussion. And uh, not only uh, by reading the book uh, will you uh, be entertained by it, but hopefully in our conversation, coming up in just a couple of moments, and uh, we uh, we urge you to stick around because of some really interesting stories and things that I didn't even know about around baseball and football and these two cities. And uh, I think you're going to really uh, enjoy it. And I really do think you'll also enjoy one of our sponsors this week, and that's Audible. Of course, uh, our friends at Audible who offer you a free month of the Audible service and a free audiobook download when you go to audibletrial.com/slash good seats. And, uh, and sign up. You can cancel at any time. It's basically a no-risk obligation. And the book that you download, even if you if you cancel the, the service, is yours to keep as long as you keep your device. And it's really cool because of some really interesting audio books that you could get that uh, very much fit the theme of this week's episode. For example, you fancy yourself as a Kansas City Chiefs fan? Well, how about listening to the Rick Tellender book? He of uh, Sports Illustrated fame and, and, and other sports writings called Like a Rose, Life Lessons from a Training Camp with Hank Stram and the Kansas City Chiefs. It's a fascinating read, and it's a great sort of little history about the Kansas City Chiefs, sort of as, as seen through the eyes of one of the legendary their legendary coaches, Hank Stram. OK, maybe you're not a Chiefs fan. Perhaps you're an Oakland Raiders fan. Well, OK, there's an audio book that you can download and use your credit for there, too. It's called Badasses, the Legend of Snake foo dr death and john madden's oakland raiders it's written by peter Richmond and it's narrated by barry adams you can listen to all 12 plus hours of that book for your with your free credit why don't you at dot com slash good seats and maybe you're just not a football fan at all but you really want to understand this sort of dynamic between the a's the kansas city version uh, that moved from philadelphia and then the oakland version once they moved from kansas city well The person in the midst of all of that and responsible for all of that is, of course, Charlie Finley and his cousin's daughter, who was part of the mix when they moved to Oakland as part of the front office. Nancy Finley has written a fascinating book, and you can listen to it uh, in audio form uh, narrated by Pam Ward. It's called Finley Ball, How Two Outsiders Turn the Oakland A's into a Dynasty and Change the Game Forever. So there you go. You've got no uh, excuse not to go to audibletrial.com goodseats to get your free one-month subscription to the Audible service, and including, of course, one free audiobook download for you to keep, to listen to, to enjoy. And again, you can cancel it at any time. You don't have to pay for that book, and you can keep it as long as your device exists. Why not, after uh, listening to this episode, sign up at audibletrial.com slash goodseats, Get a free audiobook, and one of those that I just suggested. It's a great way to complete your education, kids. And uh, you'll be glad you did, and we certainly will be too. All right, let's move on from our uh, little promotional uh, stuff there, and let's get into our interesting and fascinating conversation with Matt Ehrlich as we talk about this friction, this, this rivalry between Kansas City and Oakland on the football gridiron, on the baseball diamond. It's a fascinating chat, and I please implore you to enjoy. I hope you like it. Let's dive right into it because the, the the juxtaposition, I guess, between the metropolitan areas of Kansas City and Oakland, to the cursory eye, isn't necessarily one where I, I don't know. I don't know if if there's an, if, an obvious sort of linkage, right? But perhaps the sports rivalries, uh, maybe unintended, frankly, as things have played out, right? I, mean, I don't think anybody in the old AFL, right, if, if, would have guessed how much of a rivalry. The Chiefs and the Raiders would have, not only in the AFL, but spilling over to many, many years, even arguably still today in the NFL, right? And then, and then you throw that into the frankly bizarre relationship between Kansas City and Oakland in baseball, right? Which was a, as a direct lineage and or a taking of, if you will, or or a, a bold move of. Uh, a team that. Uh, what are the seeds of this of this theme? Right? Is it is it the AFL? Is that kind of the beginnings of it? Or
0: no? Uh, oh, yeah, I, I would say that it's actually a little bit before the AFL days, um, because you know the thing I think that links the two cities, which are very very different in many ways, and of course they're geographically um, far separated. The thing that I think links them is this idea of. Um, a civic inferiority complex and the AFL being formed in part for cities that um, um, really had been overlooked as major league cities. The, a lot of those cities literally had no big league sports. And um, so, even before the AFL was formed uh, in 1959 and started to play in 1960, both Kansas City and Oakland wanted to become big league. They wanted to be seen in the eyes of the nation as being major league cities. And these were like um, most cities west of the Mississippi River, uh, cities that had long, proud histories in minor league sports, especially minor league uh, baseball, but um, had never had that major league presence that um, so many of the older cities east of the Mississippi had. And so both of them looked um, to Major League Baseball first in the 1950s, when finally baseball started to um, expand out of the original 16 teams. And so that's how Kansas City ended up getting the Philadelphia Athletics. Um, The Philadelphia Athletics, uh, once upon a time, were a wonderful baseball team. In the um, last years of Connie Mack's ownership and the last years of Connie Mack's life, They had fallen on hard times, and um, his sons, Connie Mack's sons, were terrible owners and loathed each other, which didn't help anything. And so um, they were vulnerable to poaching, and Kansas City was able to step in and poach the A's from uh, Philadelphia. And so um, Oakland saw that. They saw how Baltimore had gotten the St. Louis Browns. They saw how Milwaukee had gotten the Boston Braves. And they were thinking, well, you know, um, we should be a major league city ourselves in one sport or another, preferably baseball. Um, in the late 1950s, of course, the Dodgers and the Giants both moved from New York to the West Coast, to San Francisco and um, to Los Angeles. And so um, Oakland um, also was seeking to be big league. Um, and before getting into the AFL, um It's worth noting that both cities had this uh, civic inferiority complex, um, not only from not having major league sports, but just they were very self-conscious about their image uh, generally. With Oakland, that's a blue-collar city, an industrial city that has always been in the shadow of San Francisco, this very glamorous cosmopolitan hub of the nation, And so they were very resentful towards San Francisco and uh, wanted to raise um, their standing Oaklanders um, in relation to San Francisco. Kansas City is smack dab in the middle of the country, a longtime agricultural hub. And um, its concern was it was uh, uh, seen as just a cow town. Um, There's that very famous song or infamous song uh, from the musical Oklahoma, um, everything's up to date in Kansas City. They went and built a skyscraper seven stories high, about as far as they can go. And so Kansas Cityans also had a chip on their shoulder. Um, so that was the backdrop. And then um, it, it coincided with um, the move of baseball franchises to other parts of the country in the 1950s. And so when the AFL came along, Again, the AFL was sort of an accidental league. Lamar Hunt founded the American Football League because he wanted uh, an NFL team of his own in Dallas. And the NFL said, we're not going to expand. or We're not going to give you a team. So Lamar Hunt, being rich and ambitious, decided, well, I'll just form a league of my own with my own team, the Dallas Texans. And that immediately prompted the NFL to decide, well, we will have a team in Dallas of our own, the Dallas Cowboys, that was put into competition with the Dallas Texans and eventually forced the Dallas Texans to find a new home. So the Kansas City Chiefs were uh, an accidental franchise that it wasn't intended to be until Lamar Hunt was forced by the NFL and um, its uh, move into Dallas to find a new home the Oakland Raiders weren't supposed to ever exist either. That was supposed to be an AFL franchise in Minnesota. But just as uh, the NFL expanded into Dallas, when they heard that the AFL was planning to have a team in the state of Minnesota, they decided they would have a franchise in Minnesota, the Vikings. And so the AFL had to find a new home and the Oakland Raiders came into being. And so This um, civic inferiority complex, this chip on the shoulder, the fact that it was an accidental league, the AFL, not taken seriously by the NFL, the fact that these two teams in their early years did not have much success, especially the Oakland Raiders before Al Davis took them over in 1963, were just a train wreck of a franchise. And um, so the fact that this eventually developed into a very heated rivalry between two wonderful professional franchises, two teams that have multiple Hall of Famers and that are um, remembered with uh, great respect and even awe by a lot of uh, professional football historians,
1: is um, really extraordinary. It just never should have happened that way, but it did. Well, so it's interesting because you say sort of chip on their shoulder, right? I mean, Oakland, obviously, in the shadow of San Francisco obviously now is a, the San Francisco Bay Area which is more of a megalopolis than than even it was back in the the early 1960s but still you know it's across the bay it's it's blue collar versus you know more of the sort of white collar and uh, maybe more elitist uh sort of rootings of the San Francisco and the 49ers at that for for that matter and in Kansas City right uh, albeit uh you know a cross state kind of shadow if you will from its uh, bigger sister St. Louis right which of course, you know, St. Louis has been, you know, a, a part of the baseball landscape uh, almost since the earliest of days of the sport in this country professionally, right? So it it, it is an interesting sort of unloved or, un, uh, or under-recognized, I guess, metropolitan or, or potentially on the come kind of metropolitan area kind of uh, uh, wanting, I guess, to sort of achieve uh, professional status. I It's just very interesting how both— Kansas City received the A's like why Kansas City right so clearly in the in the late mid to late 50s right there was sort of this arguably overdue I guess wanderlust of, of major league baseball and this recognition that there were <laughs> other <laughs> growing metropolitan areas outside of the you know the northeast and the midwest right and 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 in the AFL obviously Lamar Hunt as we've talked about in numerous episodes right the you know the opportunities Extent there for professional football, which is arguably even even less worldly, I guess, or or uh, expansionary in its mindset. I you look at how Oakland right got that AFL franchise. I mean, I think by all accounts, it was really, I guess, because of Baron Hilton's uh, Chargers franchise. I, I guess he wanted another franchise on the West Coast. There was a real scramble to find a place on the West Coast to put a franchise. I mean, I don't think Oakland was even looking for sort of pro football in 1960, were they?
0: No, uh, not so much that I can tell. And again, if you think 1960, the AFL, who knows what, nobody really has an idea of what the AFL is or was. And um, so getting an AFL charter franchise is kind of like, you can look back and then think, well, is that really a big deal? (laughs) So, yeah, they wanted uh, Baron Hilton of the Chargers, which were originally in Los Angeles. Of course, they now are back in Los Angeles for many, many years here in San Francisco. He wanted a second team in California. He wanted that natural rivalry, and it would make travel arrangements easier. And so the thought was, well, in the NFL, the – Los Angeles Rams and the San Francisco 49ers have a good rivalry. We'll, we'll just replicate it in the AFL between the Chargers and this new team in the Bay Area of Oakland. Problem is there was no stadium in Oakland. Um, the Coliseum um, wasn't even um, um, in the planning stages yet, except the very, very earliest planning stages. So for the first um, several years, the um, or at least the first, two or three seasons, the Raiders had to play in the city of San Francisco. So, you know, the fact that they were trying to get out from under the shadow of San Francisco and then they end up having to share facilities with um, the uh, 49ers, that itself was um, um, a tough pill to swallow. Nobody in San Francisco wanted to see uh, the AFL to begin with, let alone a team representing Oakland. So nobody went to the games. Uh, the team was, uh, as we mentioned, just absolutely terrible. They went 2-12, and 12, and then the next year they went 1-13. and 13. You know, one of my favorite stories about that, which is related in the book, is during their first season of existence, they, uh, the Raiders were in the city of Boston uh, to play the Boston Patriots, and um, they couldn't find anywhere to practice except a Little League baseball field. And then they had to leave the field before their practice was over. Because the little league teams showed up, and the little league teams in Boston took precedence over the AFL Raiders, so that's just about um, that's as good an example as any of just how sad sack the team was. And there's also the story, of course, of the Oakland Raiders' original name. They were supposed to be called the Oakland Seniors, not even Senores, just Seniors, until people realized what a ridiculous name it was, and. Fortunately for them, they picked um, uh, Raiders instead.
1: I'm really sort of curious as to sort of how uh, these two AFL teams, uh, well, you know, Kansas City obviously didn't come into play, as you mentioned earlier, because Dallas wasn't sort of working out. I don't think Kansas City was an obvious choice, uh, even in Lamar Hunt's mind. I I mean, how does Kansas City – well, look, I think we we remember one of our earlier conversations about uh, 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 Lamar's – Life and times. I think, if I'm not mistaken, he actually wanted to call. He actually wanted to bring the name Texans to Kansas City as well. They were going to call the Kansas City Texans, and I guess he was mercifully talked out of keeping the keeping the nickname when he brought him to Kansas City. But but I get explain to me Kansas City getting this AFL franchise, even though the AFL was still relatively new. It was, what about two years in? This was, I guess, perceived as. Uh, a nice addition to what was nicely percolating as as a few years into their their ownership of a baseball franchise, too, and and arguably maybe cementing itself a bit into the world of big league sports,
0: yeah. so Lamar hunt, um, it's it's worthwhile remembering. Lamar Hunt was a Dallas guy. Um he was raised there. He went to college there. He would live his entire life there. Basically, for the entire time that he owned the Kansas City Chiefs, um, he was an absentee owner, uh, which has a very pejorative label. But essentially, that's what he was. He uh, was all about Dallas. And again, the whole reason he founded the AFL was to have his own team in the city of Dallas. So it had to be very difficult for him to decide that to be able to compete and to keep his team afloat because... Um, you know, as of 1962, which is the last year that the uh, Texans were in the city of Dallas. um, That was also the year that the the New York Titans nearly went under the uh, AFL franchise that eventually became the Jets. So the prospects for the AFL were really murky the first two or three years. Uh, The Raiders in Oakland were doing very poorly and there were rumors about how they might move even to the city of Kansas City before the Texans moved there. So Lamar Hunt... um, really had to swallow his pride. And to keep that league afloat, he needed to find a new home. But Kansas City was not his first choice. He wanted to move the team to New Orleans. And the only reason he didn't was because there was no stadium there. Uh, He wanted to go into Tulane Stadium, uh, but uh, apparently the city or the um, Tulane University wouldn't uh, allow that. So he just kind of cast his lot elsewhere And the mayor of Kansas City at that time, a man named H. Roe Bartle, um, helped um, uh, talk Lamar Hunt into moving the team to Kansas City in exchange, in part, for an extremely generous stadium lease, only a dollar a year for, I think it was two years, um, basically giving him the use of Kansas City's old municipal stadium where the Kansas City A's played for free. So um, that's how the Chiefs um, came into being and how they ended up going to Kansas City. That's also how they got the name Chiefs, because um, H. Rowe Bartle's nickname was The Chief. And so Lamar Hunt, um, partly in tribute to Bartle, um, named the team The Chiefs after, as you mentioned, getting talked out of calling them the Kansas City Texans. Uh, He really did have his heart set on that originally, but it it just would have been uh, too bizarre. It's also worth noting that in 1963, by then, uh, Charlie Finley had already taken over the Kansas City A's. The A's came to Kansas City, you know, if the American League had been on the ball, they would have moved the Orioles um, to the West Coast instead of to Baltimore. They would have moved the St. Louis Browns, rather, to the West Coast instead of to Baltimore to become the Orioles. And they would have also moved the A's to the West Coast and basically stake claim there before the National League ever got around to it. They had that opportunity, but instead they ended up going to um, smaller cities in the East with Baltimore and in the Midwest with Kansas City. And this was despite considerable skepticism by a lot of people in the American League. They were really wondering if Kansas City was big enough to support baseball. There was even um, a line of somebody in the American League, one of the owners, saying, well, Kansas City has to be exaggerating their population claims. They must be counting, you know, corn stalks and heifers in their population claim. That's the only way you can justify um, having enough people to support the team. And uh, were able also to uh, draw upon the support of the New York Yankees, who basically had a stranglehold and their co-owner, Del Webb, over the American League at that time. So that's how the A's ended up there. And by 1963, when the Chiefs arrived, the A's had just had year after year of futility. Their original owner in Kansas City, Arnold Johnson, had sold off um, most of their best players to the New York Yankees, which really annoyed Kansas Cityans who already felt, again, um, um, kind of in the shadow of New York City and resented New York City and the Yankees, especially having been a longtime New York St. Yankees Farm Club. Um, Roger Maris had been sold from the, or had been traded, rather, from the A's to the New York Yankees right before he became back-to-back MVP uh, for the Yankees and broke Babe Ruth's home run record. And then Charlie Finley immediately wanted to uh, start trying to move the team as soon as he bought it in 1961. So um, when the city of Kansas City went after the Chiefs, they were really leery about maybe losing the A's and maybe losing big league status altogether. So they were willing to cast their lot with Lamar Hunt and with the AFL and um, that franchise, um, even though the AFL still was on shaky ground um, and they were willing to go to great lengths to get that team, even to the point of basically saying, here's the stadium for free um, and good luck with it.
1: Well, that's OK. Lots to unpack there. And that's that's very interesting. So on the A's front. Right. So I it, I got the sense that Johnson uh, was even thinking, perhaps uh, that this, uh, based on some of the things that I've read, that his ultimate goal it was almost like to sort of do a stopover in Kansas City and ultimately move to the West Coast, Los Angeles in particular, maybe even before the Dodgers even got there later in the decade. Too much truth to that. There was a rumor of that was legit in terms of his his true motivation and and the Yankees collusion. That's even more interesting. Yeah, that's what Bill Vec. Bill Beck was owner of the White Sox in
0: those days. Um, he always uh, believed that that was the um, mission all along, that. Arnold Johnson was openly or not openly, uh, certainly covertly uh, colluding with the New York Yankees and their ownership. Um, You know, the Arnold Johnson um, got um, drawn into the ownership of the A's in part because Arnold Johnson also owned Yankee Stadium back in the um, early 1950s and leased it back to um, the owners of the Yankees. So there were already ties, business ties, between the Yankees' ownership and the Kansas City A's ownership under Arnold Johnson. And um, that was Bill Beck's theory, and other people have seen a a lot of uh, evidence to support it, um, certainly circumstantial evidence, if nothing else, um, that the whole idea was that they would be the A's in Kansas City just a short time, and then they eventually would be moved to either San Francisco or Los Angeles, and the real control of the team would rest with the Yankees, would rest with the city of New York and with Del Webb, especially. Um, And if that, in fact, was the case, then, of course, total um, collusion, conflict of interest, and so forth. But even without that, the fact that You have a team, and and it's important to remember that when the A's first arrived in Kansas City, um, they were very enthusiastically received by the people of Kansas City. Ownership, or or rather attendance, in their first season, 1955, was second in the American League, only to the Yankees, even though the A's were not that good a team. And um, to see that civic support rewarded by seeing an owner continually Um, plucking away the very best players on your team, shipping them to the New York Yankees, getting um, a lot of washed up players in return and seeing this repeated season after season after season um, was in itself very demoralizing to the city of Kansas city and to um, the um, baseball fans of Kansas city. So, It was after several years of that, and then Arnold Johnson finally uh, dropping dead during spring training in 1960, and then being replaced after a season where um, Kansas Cityans scrambled to try to find local ownership and were unable to do so, um, for Charlie Finley to be the owner who then took over that team and immediately started trying to move it out of Kansas City himself. Um, well, you can imagine um, how that made Kansas Citians felt already with that proverbial chip on their shoulders. And again, looking for any um, um, straw they could grasp to try to keep some semblance of big league status, um, whether by trying to placate Finley with baseball or by trying to get um, an AFL team with the knowledge that the National Football League would never look twice at a city like Kansas City.
1: Well, some real irony there, right? So Finley, Finley coming in and sort of acting as, I guess, sort of and, and duplicity too. Let's be honest, right? About him basically winding up uh, with the franchise after Johnson's demise and and buying it, uh, I guess, from uh, from the estate. Uh, but I guess Finley was the guy that uh, that Johnson had beaten out uh, originally when the A's were were rattling around to leave philadelphia in the first place
0: yeah Finley. um family had been looking to move into baseball uh for a long time and um so he did have a deal in mind to uh propose to the a's ownership in philadelphia there were also of course um people in philadelphia who really wanted to keep the team in that city and failed to do so and um it's it, um, I, it, it seems that one of the main factors that uh, worked in Arnold Johnson's paper was, again, he had the business ties with the Yankees' ownership, and it was really the Yankees who were crucial in saying, we're not going to sell to new owners in Philadelphia, and we're not going to sell the team to Charlie Finley or to anybody else. We're going to sell it to Arnold Johnson and move it to Kansas City. But Finley is a fascinating person. Um, He's seen as a savior initially no? Yeah I you know Sports Illustrated did this great big profile of him in June 1961 um, right after he had bought the team they called him the kindliest owner in baseball which has to be the most ironic comment ever in a sports magazine considering the reputation that Finley would have in a very short time frame. Um, Mayor Bartle, who we already mentioned in Kansas City, who was very concerned with Kansas City having big league status, he said, um, Charlie Finley has the um, heart of the city in his palm. Um, It was really felt that Finley would be the guy who would keep the team in the city. And even as he was saying, you know, by golly, I'm never going to leave the city of Kansas City, even though he was burning a bus, literally burning a bus that he said represented the shuttle between Kansas City and New York, the shuttle that had taken away Roger Maris and um, all the other um, A's players that eventually ended up in Yankees uniforms, uh, burning the lease, the uh, escape clause that he said would allow him to get out of his lease. It turned out that was all a sham. And almost immediately he began trying to move the team. His first target was Dallas, ironically enough, that uh, eventually Kansas City would be able to get the Dallas Texans from. But for years, he he was an insurance salesman. He had no ties to baseball. I think he played it a little bit uh, when he was very, very young, but he just decided it would be fun to run a baseball team. The irony is, is that he turned out to be really, really, really good at it. He uh, was kind of a baseball savant, um, but that did not become apparent until several years later. And um, along with being such a uh, baseball genius, he was also a very petty, very vain, very narcissistic guy, uh, very vindictive. And um, the uh, wonderful players that he signed by opening up his wallet, um, never came to their full potential in the city of Kansas City. It would only be um, several years later after Oakland poached the team um, from Kansas City and moved the A's from Kansas City to Oakland in 1967. And um, that coincidentally happened at about the same time that the Raiders and the Chiefs finally got past their early troubles and got good. So it was in the late 60s that All of this came to a head, Uh, the rivalry between the Raiders and the Chiefs, and then uh, the rivalry between the A's, who immediately got good, immediately began to win after leaving Kansas City for Oakland, and the rivalry between that team and the expansion team that Kansas City got in compensation for losing the A's, and that would be the Royals
1: before we sort of jump back into the football side of it, because that's obviously a, a, a subtext to sort of what we're discussing sort of in the foreground with baseball. Why was Finley so irascible, I guess, uh, and and just so fitful trying to move the team from Kansas City? Because it seems like there was a period of time there, those couple of years, right, where I, Louisville was voted on and it was voted down. and And then there was a then it was a move towards Oakland. It looks like there's a whole bunch of other cities that were sort of in the mix, and I think he even threatened moving them out into some exurb of of Kansas City, out in Missouri somewhere, with like temporary bleachers and stuff. I what 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 was his problem with Kansas City? I mean, arguably, the early years prior to his ownership, right? There was an outpouring of of interest in this team. I, I, it almost seems like all he had to do was kind of put some effort into the team and the, and the metropolitan area, he might've actually had something going.
0: Well, to quote Joe McGuff, who was a longtime sports writer for uh, the Kansas City Star, he looked back on Finley years and years later and McGuff said, I think there was just something wrong with Charlie. <laughs> That's as good an explanation as I can come up with. Um, I mean, that whole uh, scenario repeated itself in Oakland he He was a kind of person who when he moved to a new city, and this is the way he seemed to be when he first moved, got hold of the A's and uh, was in Kansas City, was like a kid with a new toy, and it was just wonderful, everything was wonderful and then he got bored, and immediately it was like, well, uh, there aren't enough fans here. I'm not getting a good enough deal here." Actually, one of the things that um, really got his goat early on was this um, really uh, sweet, sweetheart kind of deal that the city of Kansas City offered Lamar Hunt and the Kansas City Chiefs, charging only $1 a year for stadium rent. And so Finley said, well, by golly, I've I've been here longer than the Chiefs have, and I put a lot of my own money into trying to improve this old stadium. Well, I should get a dollar a year rent, too. And in fact, um, the city council of Kansas City approved that um, before a new mayor and a new city council took office and then immediately negated the deal, saying it was illegal. And so he just got very angry, very vindictive. And um, yeah, he tried to move to um, the city of Louisville. He said, well, we can move to Louisville. We'll become the Kentucky Colonels. That way we can keep the KC in our caps. He said, well, um, I'm not gonna play in municipal stadium in Kansas City. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of playing in a stadium that's charging me an unfair uh, uh, rent. So I'm gonna move the team to a cow pasture. And he took reporters and photographers with them to this cow pasture. Um, One was near a town in Missouri called Peculiar. Um, so the joke then become became, well, they're going to be the peculiar A's. And so Finley was just like that. Uh, he could be incredibly charming. He was very, very bright. He was incredibly hardworking. He had great promotional sense. Um, sometimes it was a really cheesy kind of promotional sense. But, you know, he was one of the people who pushed for night baseball in the World Series, who pushed for the designated hitter. Um, and um, whose uh, innovations in that regard, for better or worse, finally did come to pass. But uh, the same thing happened when he moved the team to Oakland. At first, he was really, really happy with Oakland. He was talking about how he was going to draw a million and a half spectators per year. And when that did not happen, then immediately uh, the rumors began about how he was going to pull the team out of the city of Oakland and go to Washington or go to Dallas or go to um, who knows where. So it just seemed to be the way that Charlie Finley was wired.
1: All right, a brief pause in the proceedings just for a second uh, to uh, pay a couple of bills. And uh, we appreciate your uh, giving our sponsors uh some consideration as always. And uh, one of our uh, earliest ones that continues to be with us and we love is our friends at Audible. And uh, Audible is, as you know, the king of audiobooks. And if you've never tried an audiobook for yourself, well, uh, here's a great opportunity to do so and to support the show at the same time. Uh, and that's when you go to audibletrial.com goodseats uh, That's the place to go. And you're going to get a free audiobook download for yourself to try for free gratis on us. Uh, you can cancel uh, the Audible service at any time. Uh, and once you do download that book, and if you do decide to cancel it, it's yours to keep. So that's our little free gift. And uh, even if uh, you don't continue uh, with the Audible service going forward, you'll at least get a free audiobook uh, out of the deal. And uh, look, if you consider yourself uh, Uh, Somebody who's interested in sports and sports history and that kind of stuff like we uh, try to pursue on this little podcast. You're going to find a a whole bunch of titles in the vast array of, geez, what is it, 190,000 and counting titles to choose from. And uh, in particular, uh, if you like the if you like the hoops, you like the hoops, the basketball. Well, sure. We got a couple of those books, including, of course, probably the quintessential uh, tome oral history, if you will, of the ABA, the American Basketball Association. That's called Loose Balls. And uh, Terry Pluto is the writer and I believe the narrator of that book as well, uh, that you could use your credit for that. And it's a, it's a wonderful romp, that book, and uh, a great uh, oral history of uh, perhaps the most uh, colorful uh, basketball league of all time, the ABA. Or if you're really interested, let's say, in the National Basketball Association's history, uh, you could check out the audiobook from uh, our previous guest, uh, David Sirdam, who uh, ha- we uh, had a great chat about about the uh, history of the NFL, but uh, this book is called "The Rise of the National Basketball Association," and David wrote it. It's narrated by uh, Todd uh, Todd Barnes. Ness, you say that three times fast. Uh, and a lot of the interesting stuff in this book uh, talks about uh, uh, the NBA in the context of uh, congressional hearings around antitrust and that kind of stuff around the 40s and 1950s. Fascinating stuff. And you could use your credit for that book too. Among, like I said, 190 plus thousand other titles to choose from at Audible. And again, it's audibletrial.com slash good seats. And uh, you're going to get again, your free audiobook download courtesy of us. You can cancel at any time. It is yours to keep. And we appreciate you giving them a try. And uh, we certainly appreciate you uh, rejoining our conversation right now. So the Raiders finally, well, I guess they spent the first couple of years somewhat in a vagabond state, right? Trying to find decent places uh, to play on a, on a, on a standardized and regular basis uh, in the region, including a few games. It looks like in San Francisco and and in places other than Oakland proper, but it's also pretty clear that this AFL thing was really taking off during the middle part of the sixties and, and, And the two teams that wound up being arguably the most successful were both the Kansas City Chiefs and the Oakland Raiders. So I guess a question around maybe Oakland's early and middle years in as a team, because I think it's also the linchpin of this is is ultimately what's going to now become the Oakland Alameda Coliseum. Right. Because without that, I don't think Finley even has a real move to go to Oakland, does he?
0: Yeah, that was. Uh, and
1: again, this was something
0: that um, the people in Oakland, you know, Oakland for many years had a, a very uh, stolid, uh, conservative um, uh, leadership, business leadership and political leadership, especially with William Noland who's the former senator, U.S. senator from California, and a longtime publisher, editor of the um, Oakland Tribune. And uh, with the Oakland Tribune really leading the way, um, the uh, city fathers, city parents, if you will, of Oakland, decided that um, professional sports was going to be a path to civic greatness. And uh, a key element of that would be the construction of the Oakland Coliseum. And so the planning for that started um, in the early 1960s. Uh, the ground broke in 1964, and it finally opened in 1966. And the years in which the Coliseum was being uh, planned and uh, built were the, uh, also the years that the Raiders um, transformed themselves from a joke into a viable franchise. And the key factor there was uh, very simply Al Davis, uh, Davis coming from the Chargers and um, assuming the management of the team, he was also the first coach of the team. And he was the one who gave um, the Raiders the silver and black uniforms and the Pirates insignia on the helmets. Um, in sixty-two uh, and uh, 1963, uh, the team finally started playing in the city of Oakland on a temporary field, Frank Ewell Field, basically a high school stadium. Um, but... It uh, created a good atmosphere within the city of Oakland for the Raiders. Uh, Davis was a very good promoter. Um, He um, did a very savvy job of kind of playing into that chip on the shoulder uh, feeling that the people in Oakland had and the Raiders fans had. And um, in Kansas City, um, the um, Chiefs got good in part because Lamar Hunt was rich. And this was the time frame in which um, the AFL and the NFL were in open warfare. It was before the merger was announced in 1966. And Lamar Hunt had a very deep pocketbook, so he was able to shell out uh, big bucks for people like Mike Garrett, who was the Heisman Trophy winner. Everyone expected him to go with the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, people like Otis Taylor, uh, several other blue chip college athletes. So by 1966, when the Coliseum opens, Um, Yeah, that's um, the time that Kansas City finally wins its first division title and goes to the first Super Bowl. And the following year, 1967, Oakland would uh, win the AFL title and go to the second Super Bowl. So, those two teams by the end of the 60s and the the final years of the AFL really were the class of the league, along with uh, Joe Namath and the New York Jets. And um, it was the Coliseum as well that. Gave uh, Charlie Finley a potential home to move to. If that stadium had not been there, um, he likely would not have been as interested if if he would have been as interested at all in the city of Oakland. Um, And it was also a key factor in persuading the American League to actually approve the move of the A's to Oakland.
1: I, I got the sense though he wanted to move them to Oakland even before uh, the 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 that stadium was done right and if that's the case, where would they have played temporarily certainly not Frank Ewell field, which is arguably just a, a rectangle with some you know very broadly spread seats
0: yeah basically a high school field with i mean it looks it looked exactly like a high school field with uh, little sets of bleachers on either sideline yeah in nineteen sixty four. At the same time that uh, Finley was talking about playing in a cow pasture and talking about playing in Louisville, Kentucky, he also for a time was um, trying to move the team to Oakland even before the Coliseum was built. Groundbreaking had occurred, so there was the the certitude that eventually that stadium would exist uh, within a couple of seasons. But the idea was that for the first two seasons – Either they would have played in Candlestick Park across the Bay in San Francisco, which um, Horace Stoneham, the owner of the Giants, quickly um, nixed. He said, there's no way we're going to let uh, an American League team play in, in San Francisco. He, he wanted the Bay Area to himself with good reason. And uh, you mentioned Frank Will Field. The city of Oakland was so eager to try to land in a, a Major League Baseball team by that point that they actually offered to rebuild Frank Ewell Field for just two years, um, expanded enough that it could pass for a Major League Baseball team. Interesting. Yeah, but it it ended up being a moot point because the American League said, you're not going to leave Kansas City. You're going to sign a new lease. And that's what Charlie Finley, over vocal protests on his part, ended up doing, uh, signing a lease that kept him there until 1967. But... By that point, he was sufficiently embittered um, and sufficiently eager to leave Kansas City that uh, there was just no way the city was going to hold him.
1: All right. Well, so before we get into both teams domiciling in Oakland, because then I think it sort of almost uh, argues for, you know, sort of a, a next generation of, of of this story and this dynamic. Well, the, explain maybe a bit of sort of how— how the in the AFL the Kansas City Chiefs and the Raiders became, I, I guess, almost sort of, you know, unwitting rivals, right? I, it it it's it doesn't seem on paper that they, these would have been natural rivals when the AFL was being set up, nor even in going into the NFL. But it did did seem that there was, uh, and maybe you can sort of speak to it, or maybe it was just kind of random luck that the games were really good and competitive, or maybe there was something more to it. But but what was it between these two arguably not uh, obviously rival cities that maybe kind of became kind of a rivalry and, a, and maybe a must-watch in the AFL, it seemed? Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, yeah, you know, usually when you think of sports rivals, you think of teams that have geographic proximity. So you think of the Chicago Cubs, St. Louis Cardinals. You think of the Chicago Bears, Green Bay Packers. You think of the... Um, San Francisco Giants and Los Angeles Dodgers, that, of course, was already a rivalry, a a, a terrific rivalry in the city of New York between the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants, and then got exported to the state of California. But um, those two teams were still in the same state. And Kansas City and Oakland are thousands of miles apart. One is a Midwest city. The other one is a coastal city. So you wouldn't think that they would have that kind of rivalry. And I think it was, again, um, simply a, a product of accident. Uh, they were both in the Western Division of the AFL. And so the way the AFL schedule worked, that meant that they were going to play them each other two times every season. And uh, when the two teams got good at about the same time, that typically meant that those two teams, every time they played, or just about every time, were playing with first place in stake. So the rivalry developed that way, and then um, you had all these great players. You had Len Dawson, Otis Taylor, Mike Garrett, uh, Willie Lanier, Buck Buchanan, Curly Culp, those guys on the Chiefs, and guys like um, uh, first Gerald LaMonica as the quarterback of the Raiders, and then later Ken Stabler, um, guys like Ben Davidson and George Blanda. Art Schell, Gene Upshaw, Fred Blitnikoff, all these names that, um, that football aficionados are so familiar with, when all of those guys are on the same field at the same time and so much is at stake in terms of um, uh, this place in the standings, that's what really gave birth to the rivalry. And as I mentioned, the civic rivalry, and this is about the time that I first became aware of it, um, The civic rivalry really helped fuel it after the A's left the city of Kansas City for the city of Oakland. Then the rivalry became more than just about these two football teams playing each other at least twice each season. Then it was two cities um, fighting for uh, big league prominence, Um, two cities with reason to resent each other, two cities with uh, a reason to really dislike each other both on and off the field. And this also was the time that the AFL stature rose in the eyes of the country um, after they signed a really lucrative um, football deal with a television deal rather with NBC, starting I think in 1964, Uh, the games got nationally televised. And so, um, you know, I've seen a quote from, Uh, One football historian who was saying that it really became must watch television back in the the days when there was still such a thing as must must watch television. It was always the late game on NBC, the game that would air in the late afternoons that um, would be beamed to the whole country. So the whole country became aware of the rivalry. And then the uh, teams started fighting each other on the field with full-scale brawls. So it was good television in addition to being just um, good sports. Um, So all of that um, built this rivalry, um, this um, rivalry that you never would have thought uh, would have happened, that never really was planned you could argue that there should have been a really big rivalry between the Raiders and the Chargers because they were both in California and you had that Bay area, Southern California rivalry. Yeah. That's what Conrad Hilton wanted, right? He thought that would be the natural rival. And the San Diego Chargers were actually really good early on in the AFL, but that did not correspond with um, really quality years for the most part for the Raiders or the chiefs. So by the time the Raiders and the chiefs were in their ascendancy, Uh, The Chargers, although they were still a good team, were not really in the class of those two other teams. So that's really how the rivalry existed. And that's one of the things that I just found so interesting about it is Kansas City and Oakland are not two cities you would think have a whole lot in common. But in fact, they did have a lot in common during this time period, and they were bound together through this rivalry that nobody planned.
1: Yeah, and then and then then maybe sort of uh, accented by the A's absconding to Oakland and and domiciling themselves ultimately in the same stadium as those dreaded hated rival Raiders in the football side of things. Maybe we can sort of also sort of maybe uh, uh, backfill then what happened when the A's left Kansas City because really quickly and for for some obvious reasons and maybe not so obvious reasons. Uh, Kansas City was not bereft of Major League Baseball for too long after the A's departure.
0: Yeah, so the deal was that uh, the American League owners got together in October 1967. The main thing that they were meeting to discuss was whether the A's would be allowed to move from Kansas City to Oakland. And, you know, the other owners did not like Charlie Finley. They were not uh, naturally predisposed to give him whatever he wanted, and in fact had kept him from moving the team before and basically forced him to sign a new lease with the city of Kansas city. So, um, it was not clear cut that the move would be allowed, but, um, he made a good case and the, um, the city leaders in Oakland, people like William Noland, again, uh, the publisher of the Tribune, um, made a case that, well, we have this brand new stadium there. It's going to be a really good home for major league baseball. It will, um, help with scheduling in the American League because the California Angels had already started play in Anaheim. So, again, there would be two teams, American League teams, in the state of California, which would help travel and um, help with rivalries and so forth. So the case was made that the team should move, but Kansas Cityans were having nothing of it, and they sent their own delegation to this meeting and said – Look, this guy has been trying to sabotage baseball. This guy, Charlie Finley, has been trying to sabotage baseball in Kansas City basically ever since he got hold of the team in 1961. And we've done everything we can to try to um, to uh, try to pacify him, um, and it just hasn't worked. And now you're letting him take this team away from us with all this young talent about to blossom. I mean, it was pretty obvious even then that the team was about to get really, really good. And so how can you let this happen? And it was really Stuart Symington, who was a United States Senator from Missouri, who uh, issued a not so veiled threat. And he said, if you um, take Major League Baseball away from Kansas City for a prolonged period of time, or take it away from Kansas City forever, Um, I'm just going to have to start a little antitrust investigation in Congress about Major League Baseball. And the big league owners were already very leery about such action because um, the Milwaukee Braves had just left after only 13 seasons to move to um, Atlanta. And the big stink was raised about that over in the National League. And there were antitrust uh, suits threatened back then. So they said, um, okay, uh, we'll give Kansas City um, a, a new major league team, an expansion team, that will start play in 1969. So Kansas City ended up being without big league baseball for only one year. When it looked as though they would be without baseball for at least three years if um, they were able, ever were able to get another team again. And the Royals ended up being sort of a consolation prize, but – it turned out to be a, a nice consolation prize because that team got to be pretty good pretty quickly, and then their chief rivals in the American League West Division, the new American League West Division, turned out to be the Oakland A's, the same team that had left Kansas City only a few years before. So that's how the rivalry bled over into baseball into a new decade.
1: Well, maybe we can sort of round round the corner with that sort of that new decade because obviously the '70s were interesting, I guess, is is just a potentially mundane word to kind of describe it, right? But the rivalries between these two cities now with firmly established teams in both football and in baseball, seems like uh, that uh, they just became deeper and more entrenched and and almost sort of go-to in terms of expectation that that fireworks were going to fly and... uh, competitiveness would uh, sort of uh, be at a at a heightened level when these two teams were were taking the field and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a sort of a random sort of statement here I, it feels to me that maybe on the football gridiron it was a little more heated than in on the baseball diamond or would you argue that they were similar in terms of peak
0: well certainly the Chiefs Raiders rivalry has I mean the Chiefs Raiders rivalry exists to this very day and uh, will likely persist even after the Raiders moved to Las Vegas. I mean, it was um, a heated rivalry when the Raiders were in Los Angeles before, before moving back to Oakland. So when people think of a Kansas City-Oakland rivalry, that's what they think of. They don't think of a rivalry, really, between the Royals and the A's. Having said that, um, for a brief period, especially I would say between about 1973 and 1976, um, which coincided with a very um, colorful time in baseball generally. Um, The Royals and the A's were very, very heated rivals. And I mentioned it coincided with a colorful time in baseball. I just remember it as a time when fights broke out routinely. Um, Beanings, uh, pitchers plunking, Um, players on other teams, uh, batters then charging the mound, sometimes these fights uh, spilling over into the spectators. Um, And um, the Royals and the A's were two teams that did not like each other. And, you know, I, I grew up with this rivalry, as I mentioned. I just remembered it, that whenever a Kansas City professional team, whether it was either the Chiefs or the Raiders, whenever they would venture into the Oakland Coliseum, bad things would happen. Um, Really awful things would happen to the Chiefs. They would get crushed. Um, Their players would um, be the subject of cheap hits and so forth. And then the same thing seemed to happen with baseball because the... um, Mid-1970s were the time that the Kansas City Royals became contenders, a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, People didn't expect an expansion team to get that good that quickly, but they did. And unfortunately for the Kansas City Royals, that corresponded with the time that the Oakland A's were the best team in baseball and won three consecutive World Series. And so it was a time that, just as on the football field, Um, You saw brawls between the two teams, uh, beanball wars, war of words, nasty things being said about each other in the press, um, you know, with locker room copy, um, posting things in the locker room to try to get motivated that the other team's players had supposedly said. And it culminated in 1966 in a game in the Coliseum where the Coliseum fans started throwing beer on the Kansas City Royals bullpen. Uh, the Royals' bullpen started fighting back. One of the Royals' players grabbed a spectator's umbrella, started swinging in advance. So for at least a brief period, the baseball rivalry was every bit as heated as the football rivalry.
1: Well, it's also interesting too, because as the 70s wore on, I think Finley kind of, uh, I mean, obviously there was some some championship seasons there in the early part of the decade, but My, oh my, by the end of the decade, it's clear that the Royals were certainly more ascendant and the A's maybe self-inflicted from Finley's, shall we call them, curious ways. Uh, I think it's 79, you're talking about like, you know, hundreds of people showing up at the the A's games, uh, the latter part of the decade.
0: Yeah, there's a famous story. I think there was a game in April 78 or 79 uh, in the Coliseum, a, a night game, and of course, Night games in the Coliseum can be very cold, especially in April, early in the season. And there was something like a paid attendance of 689 except that the people were there saying that was a gross overstatement, that it wasn't nearly as big an attendance as that. One player started counting literally each person in the stands before he finally gave up. But yeah, it was Finley's... um, peculiarities, but also just his cheapness. He decided he couldn't compete anymore because by the late 1970s, um, that was the age of free agency. And so he just decided, well, I'm going to get out and uh, get out of the game. And in the meantime, I'm going to run this operation on the cheapest um, shoestring that I can possibly uh, do it. Um, But even then, you know, Finley... Um, still was able to get some really good players. The the most famous would have been Ricky Henderson, um, who made his debut um, right at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 1980s. And um, after Finley sold the team, by the early 80s, and especially toward the end of that decade, the A's were powers again. But um, certainly by the end of the decade, the Royals were the um, main team in the American League West, the A's, had pretty much collapsed their dynasty. And the real rivalry that the Royals experienced became uh, uh, with the New York Yankees by the late 70s.
1: Well, so describe to me then, and obviously there's a lot more rich detail uh, in this book, and it, it's really very well researched. I will I, I, I give you kudos for that, uh, especially because... It does uh, unearth a few sort of lesser known or maybe not even known real facts. When you look at it and you juxtapose these two cities and the way they grew up, if you will, and became sort of part of modern metropolitan areas and how sports was either directly or indirectly sort of part of that sort of uh, that maturation. I, I guess you're probably the best person to ask this sort of maybe wrap up question is sort of where you know, where do we see Oakland and Kansas City with its relationships, plural, to sports and themselves as metropolitan areas going forward? I mean, you look at things like the explosion of growth in the, the Bay Area and how Oakland is becoming, I don't want to say gentrified, but maybe that's the 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 proper word for it. Uh, Kansas City certainly, uh, you know, has uh, with the the Wizards, for example, and, and, the District downtown and and the Sprint Center, albeit now without a still without an NHL or an NBA franchise. Uh, but, you know, it's a major metropolitan area now, almost to the point of rivaling that of St. Louis in terms of population and influence. What of these two metropolitan areas? And how much would you say that sports is still part of their lives going forward? I, it seems to me like they're still pretty inextricably entwined, yeah.
0: Oakland is
1: an interesting
0: case study right now, because they are about to lose the Raiders, uh, probably after this season. If not, then after next season, it really seems to depend on whether the uh, new stadium in Las Vegas will be ready by um, 2020 season. And
1: the Warriors too now go into across the Bay to their new their brand new center, right? And there's talk about the A's probably staying though, and that might be interesting if uh, if the right stadium environment can be done economically.
0: And that's the real key question. Um, The city of Oakland um, seems to um, have decided that it simply is not worth trying to shell out enormous sums of public dollars to try to keep a team like the Raiders, especially, or to try to compete with the uh, Chase Center in San Francisco. So it really comes down to do they really want to do whatever it takes to keep the A's in the city of Oakland? And um, so the real question will be um, will there be a new ballpark for the A's and if so, where will it be located and how will it be paid for? And to an outsider, and I'm definitely an outsider when it comes to the city of Oakland, it sounds to me as though the A's are saying the right sorts of things. They are saying that you know we will fund for the pay for the stadium ourselves uh, with certain conditions, but they're not expecting the city of Oakland or the Bay Area to shell out all the the funding for it, but it's very controversial because of gentrification, because of an affordable housing crisis in the Bay Area and in the city of Oakland, and because of the same sorts of um, racial divisions and class divisions that have uh, long been characteristic of the Bay Area. The question will really come to the fore in the very near future, if they haven't come to the fore already, what will the city of Oakland really be willing to do to try to keep the A's or will they eventually decide, you know what, we don't feel as though um, given all the other priorities that uh, we have to deal with that having that major league baseball identity or that major league identity generally is all that important anymore. So that makes Oakland a real um, uh, interesting case study going forward. And for the city of Kansas City, you know, in the the immediate future, it seems as though uh, the city doesn't really have anything to worry about, that the Royals and the Chiefs are there um, um, with uh, leases signed at the Truman Sports Complex, at least until the year 2031. But then you realize that the year 2031 is really not that far away, um, if you are thinking at all about a new sports facility. By the year 2031, the Truman Sports Complex will be almost 60 years old. And um, new ownership is about to take over the Kansas City Royals. Um, And there's a lot of talk about maybe there should be a downtown ballpark in Kansas City. There hasn't been a downtown ballpark uh, in Kansas City basically ever. Municipal Stadium was located um, a fair distance away from the city center so um, the city of kansas city is going to have to deal with the same sorts of questions that oakland has been dealing with um, should there be a new stadium if so where should it be um, who's going to pay for it with everything else that urban areas have to deal with is it really that important to keep the chiefs and the raiders and so that's really the key question that this whole sports rivalry and the whole history behind it raises I will go on record that I think professional sports um, can do a fair amount to bring together a city's people. I think it does engender civic pride. Um, it's important not to place too much weight on it to the expense of everything else, especially when it comes to public spending on sports facilities and sports teams, because uh, sports teams have delta. Uh, have resorted to virtual extortion when it comes to playing cities against one another to try to hold and attack teams. But still, I would like it if um, the A's remained in the city of Oakland. The A's have a great history in the city of Oakland. And certainly both the Chiefs and the Royals have established uh, great histories uh, to the city of Kansas City. So it would be nice to see a fruitful compromise reached but um, we live in really interesting times, and the uh, years ahead uh, promise to be even more interesting.
1: Well, I, I think that's right, and and I know we sort of really didn't talk about soccer in this conversation, but you look at Major League Soccer almost sort of as a even a, a shorter sort of microcosm of Jekyll and Hyde, co-locating within NFL arenas and building soccer-specific stadiums first in sort of suburban areas, like in the in Kansas City's case, uh, out almost near. Uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and the border there, Uh, but then uh, actually now a renaissance just within a few years of seeing how downtown might be a more authentic, quote-unquote, soccer experience, especially if a brand-new stadium is built, and St. Louis evidence of that. But Kansas City, having uh, created, frankly, a transformation of their original Major League Soccer franchise with a very successful one, albeit not this year in terms of on-the-field performance, with um, Sporting Kansas City and that that beautiful park, a state-of-the-art park. Uh, near Kansas City, Kansas, I it's just very interesting how real estate uh, has become almost sort of uh, issue one, uh, perhaps more so than in any other era of professional sports in this country. And I guess to your point, you know, how cities, quote unquote, metropolitan areas, civic pride, almost uh, seems to kind of bow or cower to the sort of real estate issues related uh, even before the team and its play, and and maybe what it means for uh, civic pride in terms of playing and, and the actual sport itself, which is really weird, really interesting if you're a longtime sports fan, but perhaps a sign of the times economically, and this is not a new concept. We've seen this in the earliest days of baseball back in the 1800s, right? It's a business, but it seems like the business has uh, is in all capital letters now. You know, it's a very interesting dynamic that we're kind of uh, boomeranging into and. You know, the money's getting bigger and uh, the stakes are getting higher and the how taxpayers and municipalities deal with that. And and some having the gumption to kind of say no, uh, some recognizing that they desperately or think they desperately needed to to keep their status amongst other cities and metropolitan areas. It's a really interesting time, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. And I think cities have started to wise up. I think uh, the city of Oakland has wised up when it came to the Raiders. You know, it's it's ironic that the city of Oakland rebuilt the Coliseum to get the Raiders back from the city of Los Angeles after the Raiders had, lost, had left once before. And they built that enormous center field deck uh, called uh, sardonically Mount Davis after Al Davis, the owner of the Raiders at that time. The Davis family still owns the team. And so they built that. Centerfield deck for expanded football seating, and apparently that deck isn't even being used for football seating anymore. So the city of Oakland, I think, has learned a hard and bitter lesson when it comes to uh, football, at least. Other cities um, are also looking more critically, it seems, at um, just the price that really is worth paying to try to keep or attract a major league team. Um, And they are balancing it against other kinds of priorities, one of which is trying to make the central business districts or the urban hub a really vital, interesting place. And, you know, if a a new stadium, whether it's for football or soccer or baseball or whatever, is a means toward um, really rejuvenating a downtown area, and it, it can be done in a relatively cost-efficient sort of way, then it can be a good thing. But, you know, and then there are cities like Las Vegas, and I don't want to harp too much on Las Vegas because I haven't researched it enough. But, you know, it it does make you wonder um, when a city decides it's going to shell out $750 million in public money to try to land a football team. Um, with all the urban needs that the Las Vegas area has, and whether that's really going to pay off for that community. Um, maybe it will, but um, it does show that there are still cities, um, you know, in the waning uh, months of the second decade of the 21st century that are still really eager to be big league and are still eager just as Kansas city and Oakland were back in the 1950s and 1960s to really pay a price. They think it's a worthwhile price to be able to say we have big league hockey, we have big league football, maybe we'll have big league baseball or other sports. um, And this will really put us on the map as a metropolitan area to be reckoned with. So in some respects, um, uh, cities are repeating history, and in other respects, they're making new history by breaking uh, away from this pattern of basically paying whatever price they think needs to be paid for uh, being bigly.
1: You consider yourself a fan of the Oakland Raiders or the Kansas City Chiefs? Well, as they battle it out uh, for supremacy in the AFC West this season, uh, maybe you're a, uh, a fan of uh, of the soon-to-be Las Vegas Raiders. You got your season tickets and your personal seat license for the new stadium there. Uh, well, hell, maybe even you're just a, not even a football fan, but perhaps a, a baseball fan. And you enjoy the A's in Oakland and hope they stay there. Uh, and Maybe even as a Kansas City Royals fan. Uh, If you're a fan of any of those franchises, you uh, have uh, absolute uh, entree into this story. Uh, That is the bitter sports rivalry. That is that of Kansas City and Oakland. And again, the book, the definitive book on that theory and that topic written by our guest, Matt Ehrlich. It's called Kansas City versus Oakland, the bitter sports rivalry that defined an era. It is published by the University of Illinois Press. It is available Wherever you find good books. And one of those places, of course, is on our website and through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. It's, I think, number 136. My goodness, with uh, our pal, Matt Ehrlich. And uh, you'll find a convenient link uh, to that book. And of course, all of uh, the other great books and, and items that we've got uh, through the years uh, now on our website, whether it be books or movies or other forms of media. And uh, by doing so, not only will you uh, help Matt out by buying a copy or two of that book, but uh, we would appreciate if you did it that way, too, because you'll give us a few shekels in the process. And, of course, we appreciate that. And while you're there at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, why don't you stick around and find some other cool stuff to do, like looking at, and finding and subscribing and following us on all of our social media feeds. Say on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. And on uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook. Sure. You will There's a page devoted to us there. Let's see. You can also send us email from the site or just directly. If you want, go ahead, do it. I don't care. Hello at goodseatstillavailable.com. That's how you get to me via email. If you also want to sign up for our weekly email newsletter, well, you can do that too. There's a convenient link there. If you just search around, you'll find it. And that'll give you a little bit of an inside uh, scoop uh, a couple of days earlier than the Hoy polloi. Uh, and find out what's coming up for next week and uh, all the other doings on this here little show. Let's see. We uh, thank not only Matt and you for listening, but also our pal Jerry. Jerry Payne, his name is. And, uh, of course, he's the uh, chief cook and bottle washer amongst uh, the merry band of, uh, of you know, no goods there at Podfly Productions. No, they're actually really good. Uh, and in particular, Jerry is really good at the production thing. And he helps and has been helping us for the last couple of years, getting uh, all of our stuff together to uh, make some semblance of a show each and every week. And we appreciate it. And you will too. If you want to get into podcasting and learn about how the whole process works and stuff, uh, you can find out more about Podfly at podfly.net. All right. That is it for this week. I thank you tremendously for listening this far and uh, hope you enjoyed it. And we uh, look forward to presenting you with another fun filled episode next week. And until then, Our thanks, and uh, we'll see you next week. Take care.